enemies list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. So, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. My guest today is Margaret Hoover, and on The Enemies List today, we're going to have a conversation about conversations and about political dialogue in this country, because she is someone who I think you should be watching on Firing Line. She is taken the mantle of the of a very, very famous discussion show initially hosted by William F. Buckley back in the dawn of time for all of those of you who were who were born in a, in a year that has a two instead of a one in front of it. She hosts Firing Line every week, and it is a really incisive and insightful discussion with some of the most compelling and intelligent political figures in our culture today. And I'm so delighted to have you with us today, Margaret. Welcome to the enemies list. I am so... I- a, a huge moniker, like a huge badge of honor to to put <laughs> no, I, I, that's becoming like the the more real Trump's nomination and potential real mm-hmm. becomes, like the more real an enemies list becomes. I think we'll probably find ourselves on it. I think we can both agree. I mean, he's right now the way he reshaped the political culture in this country and the political landscape in this country is is so profound that we actually talk about that in a sort of unironic way now. I know. I mean, it's it's trepidatious and it's still a little, at least from my perspective, I'm still, (laughs) hope is not a strategy, but I'm still a little hopeful Right. Um, that fate will break the other way. If you leave it to that, it's not going to. That's that's always the case. The harder you work, the more luck you have. But I mean, that that idea, though, that we have this this really fundamentally reshaped dialogue in the country, it's it's why I think what you do on Firing Line and, and a lot of your other stuff it's so insightful and thoughtful because it is it harks back to an era where we had a political dialogue in this country that wasn't screaming. Yeah. That wasn't, you know, who's going to put out the most transgressive tweet of the day. And, and as a guy who does his fair share of transgressive tweeting, I think it's valuable what you do because it does hark back to an era where we, where we really did hash things out across the political spectrum. Look, I, I strive to do it and it gets harder and harder, but we're still we're still sticking to our guns and doing it. And I, I, I appreciate your kind words. It's high praise coming from you. There is absolutely a place for the, the quick tweet that's pointed and witty and, point, and, you know, biting. By the way, I don't like some of those tweets make it into the program and then we unpack them and talk mm-hmm. about it. And so that's the idea is that, you know, we try to not dehumanize people, but humanize them and sit down and look eye to eye and see where we can agree or see where we disagree and see if we can actually talk about it. I mean, a lot of times I feel like a successful program is one where we hit a nerve, either culturally or politically, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then it generates a week's worth of op-ed content where people right. have something to say about it and they have a point of view about it. And it's on both sides. And like sure. recently happened on Richard Dreyfus was on the program and he made a couple mm-hmm. comments about the DEI standards that Hollywood is implementing for Oscar nominees. And, right. you know, he said, you know, he also had this, you know, all of it is also about the soundbite. He said they make him want to vomit. Right. <laughs> so, so that was that was the soundbite. But actually, 
it inspired, you know, an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times and a lot of sort of editorials and, of course, lots of tweets, but a lot of TV segments and just like right. additive unpacking of sort of different aspects of the argument he went on to make. That's what, you know, I try to do that. <clears throat> Jay Johnson told me, Obama's Homeland Security Director, sure. Secretary, that he'd never seen a program that had, had everyone on it from Sarah Huckabee Sanders to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> That's a whole spectrum of, of political guests and political ideologies represented. You know, it's interesting to me because I think you and I both come out of that sort of like broad center right former Republican or, you know, the sort of I'm still individual. I'm hanging on, man. I know. I Listen, I tell people this all the time. They're like, aren't you a progressive? I'm like, no, I'm a center right guy. I, I'm a homeless no party center right guy who doesn't have a place to go. The thing I was going to get to is it strikes me that two things replaced the individual liberty, small government conservatism. That one is this sort of conspiratorial, weird dynamic of the downtrodden white dude uh, who's angry about a lot of things. And the other part of it is this like sudden and I think rather shocking set of goals that the social conservative part of the of the party reached in the after a 50 year war all of a sudden like it's like they they've completely crossed over to where they where they never thought they'd get they the got Dobbs car. yeah the dog did the dog get, did get the car and the weird thing is it's like they know how bad the polling is on this they know the political consequences hurt them in 22 and yet it's it strikes me they're still trying to push the the window further and further and further out there yeah, I think one of the insights that I've gotten hip to, frankly, thanks in part to the format of my program, David French and I were talking about this dynamic on the conservative right. And of course, David French mm-hmm. comes, you know, he's a, he's a center right guy, but he's principled. He's yep. Trump, he's, and but also like profoundly from the evangelical and, and traditional conservative tradition. Definitely. Help me understand that even though you have this incredibly extremist far right wing contingent of the social conservative cohort, mm-hmm. they have fractured into like many, many, yes. many factions and they are not mm-hmm. a monolith anymore. I mean, they were a monolith in the sense that they were a pro-life monolith and they were over pro, for, uh, for overturning Roe and for, you know, Dobbs coming out the way they wanted it. But now that that's happened, there, there's so many divisions and fissures within the mm-hmm. right. It's almost, it's just like the strongest, most extreme voices are getting the energy and so it feels like, you know, that's where it's going. But I don't I don't think there's a centralized sort of coherent, like definitely a limit all abortions legislatively. I mean, you have even Asa Hutchinson saying like rape and incest, maybe not so much, even though he signed the bill in Arkansas. Right. right. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I've, I've said this before, but in a weird way, Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush caught that where the American brain was on abortion. H.W. said, you know what? I don't like abortion, but it's always going to be legal in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother. And Bill Clinton said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. They were both playing against their uh, against their party type. If you surveyed those, and, and I did many times, that's where people were. And now this, you know, now we've got the snitch program in Texas and elsewhere. We've got the six-week bans popping up everywhere. It's funny. I, I had a conversation with a very prominent evangelical member of the Florida legislature recently. And he said, I wanted abortion to be made illegal. I wanted Roe to be overturned. He says, but now I'm starting to worry that we have unleashed something that we don't even understand where it's going to land. Well, he's right. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks, thanks for playing. 
Yeah, yeah. right. Thanks That's- for joining us on Sensible Island. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that just drives me that drives me it drives me absolutely crazy. It's um there's actually so much that we should go back to when we come to the early 90s in terms of the formulations that made it right on the social issues. I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. obviously we've made great progress. The one I always remember is the decision should be between a doc, a woman, a doctor and her god. Yes. Which was yes. Uh, and you know, I still hew to that and I still this this one is I, I have a hard time with just on a personal level. I've always been a pro-choice Republican. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really difficult for me to see, you know, the party, the aperture of the party just closing and closing and closing when it comes to that. And I think we're seeing the we're seeing the uh, what I think is an even I find I look, I think Dobbs was one of the most consequential Supreme Court decisions of our lifetimes by an order of magnitude over so many other things. We're starting to see the hints out there of these very feisty social conservatives saying now, like, well, maybe gay marriage. They're going after Obergefell in some of the states now. Well, Clarence and, gave them, you know, you know, gave him a sort of a, a, a an assist by, you know, crankily throwing that into the Dobbs decision. Like, we got to look at all these strict scrutiny cases, including the LGBTQ cases. But mm-hmm. also just I will say, and this is this is a point I often make as a political strategist. I think you'll appreciate this. <laughs> look what the LGBT political movement did with a cranky throwaway line from Clarence Thomas. They went right. and passed it through the Senate and the House and got the president to sign a bill. And now we're not just like relying, if you're in the LGBTQ universe and you care or you're an ally like me, right? You, know, you got the law on your side. It's not just a Supreme Court decision that could be overturned someday. You've got the law on your side. And the thing that drives me crazy about the political pro-choice movement is that they embedded themselves with one party for too long, the Democratic sure. Party, and they didn't build bridges. They didn't support the Susan Collinses and the Lisa Murkowskis and the, and the Governor Whitmans, Chrissy Todd Whitmans. That's right. Were pro-choice Republicans. And so they lost their political base of support in the Republican Party because they didn't show up for them. And, mm-hmm. you know, that this is also what happens when you subsume an issue to a partisan game. Right. You got to be bipartisan if you really care about an issue, if you want your issue to live. And sure. the, the left couldn't do that. And that, you know, so you asked the lawyers of Planned Parenthood, I ran into a friend, a colleague who had been for mm. 15 years a lawyer at Planned Parenthood. I mean, she's not surprised any of this happened. This has been a slow march. They've been watching it. But it, it still shocks me. It's like... It, Maybe it's performative. I don't know. Maybe you, you have a thought on this, but the, when the Dobbs decision came down, they they acted like this was this was some. A lot of people act like, oh my god, how did this happen? It happened because Leonard Leo and billions of dollars have been spent on the Federal Society stacking the bench for thirty years. It wasn't okay. a secret. They were doing it in broad daylight. Absolutely. Where was Planned Parenthood? Where where was you know where were all the you know the government right. where were all the groups that were watching this happen and what were they doing to block it what were they doing to build a bipartisan majority of support for their issue mm-hmm. frankly the way the gay rights movement did I mean the gay rights movement built I mean twelve Republican senators signed on to the Respect for Marriage Act in the last session right. twelve Republican right. senators yeah, I mean mm-hmm. you have two pro-choice senators and neither of them have been supported by the advocates. On the on right. the pro pro life on the pro choice side. So anyway, I that's a hobby horse of mine. I think the Democrats and the and the and the progressives in American political culture are often their own worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. You know, they 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 frequently like find themselves just just broken. So I want to talk a little bit about we we t- sort of touched on this in the beginning. <clears throat> what kind of political dialogue? Because I really think that getting out of this sort of hole that we're in is going to take people talking again. 
What kind of political dialogue are you looking for? I mean, not only for your show, but in the country, because you've, you've written a little bit about this. I've read some about about this. Tell me what you would do to sort of improve the way that we talk to each other about politics and policy in this country. Well, I try to model it every week on the program, right? I try to, especially when I have people that I disagree with on, or or even some people I, I agree with, but I disagree on an issue. Mm-hmm. I think so much of it is the spirit with which you come to the table. If you come because you understand their point of view, you're giving somebody else. By the way, I learned this in my marriage. Um, <laughs> but if you give someone else the benefit of the doubt and you give them credit for not being a monster, even if you think their point is monstrous, but give mm-hmm. them the benefit of the doubt. They're not a monster. There's got to be something there you just don't understand. And really try to just try to see it from their perspective, try to understand it, or be willing to call them out in a way that's respectful and respects their humanity. I mean, this sounds like, I'm sorry, I sound like a therapist or something. I'm not. But I just, I remember <laughs> looking at Richard Dreyfus and being like, okay, you said this, but you tweeted this. So what, do you, what gives? I, I really think so much of it is like the way you ask the question. And I think you could see, I wasn't trying to do a gotcha. I was really just trying to say, but you said it should be this way. And then you tweeted this. So what gives? And I think, you know, he was like, oh, so you're saying I'm a hypocrite. And I was like, no, I'm just saying like, what, how do you square it? And he was like, oh, mm-hmm. maybe I was mm-hmm. wrong. Maybe I was wrong. And like, so then he gave a little. So I think, I think a lot of it is in a conversation, you can establish a rapport with someone and you build it's, it's This is all about trust. Right. It's just listening yeah. to somebody and trusting somebody and then, you know, creating a space that's going to honor their point of view or 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 honor it by rigorously disagreeing with it, but showing respect for it by disagreeing with it. Right. The 2024 election is is looming up before us. We talked in the beginning of the show about the likelihood of Trump being the nominee again. What are the things you're watching for in terms of of the shape and the terrain of this of the 24 election? What are the things you're you're interested in and you're going to. And, and you'll be bringing to the, to the discussions in the coming year here, what is 14 months or 15 months, whatever the, whatever the hell, the hellish March ahead of us is. I have a, like a political operative hat on because I still am watching all this from a political operatives perspective. Um, sure. And then I also have like the conversations and the, the discourse, the public discourse part of it on the political side. I mean, I'm really, and I, I'm clear with the audience and clear with my guests. Like I'm, quite worried that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination again. And, and I think he could win. I, I don't think Joe Biden's sort of a runaway. I don't know that, no. he will be, you know, it's, I just, I think he could win fair and square. I don't think he has to steal it. I think there are a set of circumstances where he could because, you know, it, this electoral college situation that we have, and frankly, the fact right. that we don't have a national presidential election, we have 50 state elections we sure for do. electors for electors who then go and vote for for the president. And each of the states administer differently, vote differently, count ballots differently. And all he has to do. So, I mean, the thing that I am most worried about, Rick, is a situation where an Arizona, a Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, Mm -hmm. aren't able to tabulate quickly. Enough uh, doubt is cast on what the outcome of that is. It's enough time for Trump to rabble up a bunch of, you know, January 6th type rioters to go storm the Maricopa County recorder's office yep. and then just not send in a, a slate of electors. In a case where you're tight getting to 270, if one state doesn't send in a slate of electors, 
you you have a constitutional crisis. I mean, you have you have to, I guess, kick it to the house, and then the house has to sign. And then the house decides by delegation, and by it's delegation, just a- and and you know if it's and it's the new delegation, right? So we don't know if it's going to be. De- you know, both for Democrats and Republicans right now. <laughs> if it were this house, it would be, it's 26, I think it's 26, 24 right now because of election. It is, it is. I mean, one of the things I'm looking at is what states vote well and what states don't. Uh, Arizona doesn't count well. They don't, they don't vote well, mm. they don't count well, and it's sort of set up to be a mess. Florida, ironically, because of all the mess in 2000, actually, <laughs> none of us go to bed anymore wondering what happened in the panhandle. Like no. they have two time no, we, zones and they've figured out how to count the votes and they do it well and they pre-process and they tabulate and they do all the things that, uh, frankly, Arizona should be doing. And by the way, California should be doing. So yes, California is never, never hanging in the balance for us. We sadly know which way <laughs> house for, house, for house seats, though it does. But so that's on the political side. I mean, on the conversation side, I, you know, I want to have every single candidate for president on as a guest. Um, so far, I've had Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson. I've previously had Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. I have not yet had Governor DeSantis on, but he is welcome. You you won't you won't get him. He only goes to the to the to the warm end of the baby pool of the media. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? If he is the nominee, he'll 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 probably want to come on. He'll probably want to. Most likely, most likely. I mean, I I, I, I was in, you mentioned Chris Christie, who has been actually sort of like the one guy who who has no path to victory, and yet. I will freely admit to enjoying watching Chris Christie tear up the scenery in this election cycle. You know, me too. And, and you know, Trump had no path to victory either. So there's a part of me that that wonders, you know, whether he might resurrect the soul of the country, even though he as flawed as he is and as, um, <laughs> you know, still trying to thread the needle a little bit as he is. I really applaud him for what he's doing. I mean, we have just so desperately needed somebody to call themselves a Republican and call out the the insanity and um, right. and the and the, the criminality, the criminality, uh, the immorality, the unconstitutionality, uh, all the things, and it's just so refreshing. And Asa's doing it too, and that's helpful. But I do think Chris has more of a megaphone. Oh, he's a, Chris is a very skilled sort of a cell corridor green room operator. He really knows how to do TV. I don't think Asa, God love him, just doesn't have the same thing. So there's one candidate. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Trump or not. Have you? I haven't. And you know what? I it, It's interesting. So I never wanted to when he was president. I never tried. Um, oh, I have mm. interviewed Mike Pence. I should have said I just Mike Pence, the candidate that everyone forgets. Um, <laughs> I, I should interview Trump. I think that firing line is the kind of place where because we tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, what we've learned with Trump. Let me back up is that you can't treat him like a normal candidate. You can't put him on never, a live never. town hall on CNN, no matter how good or bad the interlocutor is. And I think, you know, Caitlin mm-hmm. did as best as she could in a, in a really terrible circumstance. I don't think anybody could have done better, I, but it was, it's still Trump. And so you, you just can't have him live. I think that the answer is you have to tape him. And so I actually think firing line is the place where we could do it because we tape it. We edited mm-hmm. it. I mean, that's this is sort of the competitive advantage. I'll tell you the dirty little secret of firing line for for all of those enemy list watchers. We have a huge advantage because there's no race to commercial break. You know, I get to sit down with somebody for 30 minutes and I have to produce 26 minutes, no commercials. So mm-hmm. you know, people take a pause or say something the same way twice. You know, you you're completely consistent with the conversation, but you can take the second time they said it because it was better than the first. 
Got and it. Then, you know, and and then and it makes it more watchable. And it also gives the guest a chance to say it better or say it or even ease into how they would say it. You know, sometimes they'll say their talking point, but then you get to go back sure. and say, but what did you mean by that? What did you mean? Mm-hmm. Or what did you mean? What did you mean? And because there's no race to commercial, I can say they don't they can't go anywhere. Like they're stuck right. here until they answer the question. <laughs> so it 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 does. It's just a you know, long form makes it a lot easier to to get that. And so we should make a run at getting Trump at a good time. I'll let him say no. I don't want to say he'll never do it. Who knows? No, he maybe maybe he would. I hesitate to think that he would think this was a good good format for him or a good choice. But well, we should, <laughs> we, we we absolutely should. I, it's funny you ask because I've been thinking about it uh, a lot, and it's something that then would serve the viewers because I think that I'd be able to to go back and forth with them in a way that that would be revealing. I don't know. It helps. He- by the way, I, I think he's very he's a he's very quick and he's very facile when he's in a live audience situation. He knows how to really read a room and he feeds off people in the room, which I, I think was one of the things that CNN sort of miscalculated on in that room was putting in a bunch of Trump fanboys where he felt that energy and built it back up. But this would be a frame, I think, that would require him to think and and it have introspection, which is not a notorious strong suit of the former president. The lizard brain doesn't have a lot of reflection. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> no. hard. It's, it's, but look, uh, you know, we, we should do it. We should do it. So I think you should, I think you should give it a shot because it would be a fascinating, fascinating insight into how he thinks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and, and you should give, make a run at DeSantis, even though he wants to live completely in the uh, right wing media bubble, even in the general, as people are telling people they're never doing real interview, regular interviews, they're never doing MSNBC, they're never going to. I'm fascinated by that. I don't think it'll hold if he got the nomination. I don't think they could resist that. But it's fascinating how how comfortable a lot of people on the far right feel about this alternative media ecosystem they've built for themselves. Yeah. The other one I'm um, trying to figure out, I, I'd like to do RFK because also we have the time to really, you know, he doesn't, he can't just say his things and not be challenged. So I right. have the time to really challenge him. I have the time to study what are the, what are the, and, and we've looked at this and I've looked at this and a lot of people looked at this. I mean, he has a couple of studies that he always cites and, mm-hmm. you know, I have the time to read the studies, talk to the people who have authored the studies and be ready. Cause I, I know people who have done this actually in my, my husband, sure. when he was at the daily beast, yep. um, had a bit of, uh, interaction with him and, and, you know, was, was willing to run one of his op-eds if he was able to fact check everything in it mm-hmm. independently fact checked and it didn't fact check out. And they, they sat down with him and went through it all. And, and to, right. be able to do that on camera, I think would be really valuable. Yeah, I think so. And I think he's sort of become this symbolic figure in the in the conspiracy right of, oh, he's the anti-vax truth teller. He's the uh, and it, it doesn't I don't I mean, look, I'm not a virologist. I just, you know, uh, study tropical diseases in my spare time. He's a weird sort of symbolic. He's, he's like a signifier in the culture now rather than a, an actual person. There's a desperate need among conspiracy driven Americans to fill in all the things they don't understand with something cohesive. And he gives them that, I think, right now. Totally. Absolutely. And, and he's a Kennedy. So he's just connected to conspiracy theories. And right. Americana. Uh, it's like on both sides. It's like he's the perfect avatar for all yeah. things. It's, ter- it's sort of terrifying how much that Bannon has been able to elevate him as quickly as he has. And that's the the piece of this that also ought to be really exposed in the mainstream is is how advantageous RFK's rise is for Trump and how much sort of the the 
the troublemakers in the Trump orbit from Roger Stone to Steve Bannon to all these mm-hmm. guys, you know, it just, it just, Alex Jones, there's, the smoke, whole... there's fire. Mm-hmm. I, I, I suspect we'll see a lot of RFK on Fox this year. Yeah, totally. Well, that, well, actually, well, that'll be, that, that presents a whole set of issues for them in terms of liability and, um, you know, and you'd think they'd learn their lesson on <laughs> that stuff, but it doesn't seem you used to sort of post up against Bill O'Reilly on Fox way back in the day. Gretchen Carlson and I had the highest rated segment on Bill O'Reilly's program for two years. And I love that. I mean, Gretchen, Gretchen's, a, I mean, she continues to this day to be an absolute and total hero. I mean, she was the assassin. Yeah, she really stood up. and uh, But but it wasn't, she didn't do it to assassinate her when she did it. You know, she she just took this courageous stand that nobody else there was willing to do, and um, you know, I really applaud. Well, I mean, and you used to, you used to be the, the the counterpoint to a lot of Bill's like rather lurid fantasies about the world. Yeah, I look. It's so it's it's weird because I actually learned a ton being on. Sure, Saturday. like he really was an extraordinarily talented broadcaster. No um, question. And he was also um, a really complicated person. And yeah, I mean, I tell I tell people this all the time. I learned a lot from Roger Ailes. Yeah. Now, not all of it good, yeah. but I learned a lot. He was a brilliant TV architect. He was a guy who reshaped the landscape of American news in a profound and fundamental way. It's certainly, I mean, I, I think twenty four is going to be a really interesting point as as even the media on the right seems to have sort of atomized out into a bunch of different smaller more extreme segments, right? And this is, and this is what's really, really interesting to me. And I, I mean, I'm only getting hip to like who the right places are to the right voices to be on. And, and uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not even sort of Charlie Kirk anymore. There's a whole new generation of young ardent, you know, (laughs) I don't even know how to characterize their politics because I, you know, to the extent that there's a cohesive ideology, I mean, are there, Kind of nationalistic and they're kind of populist, but they're just kind of haters and they're super, super Trumpy, sort of. They sound kind of like DeSantis. Um, and it's somewhat, some of it seems like, some of it seems almost just like, like trolly and posture rather than. Which is sort of the guy. Yeah. I mean, the, the trolling, trolling is like the centerpiece of the MAGA and nationalist movement in a lot of ways. So that's hard because, you know, the centerpiece of, of the modern American conservative movement was ideas. <laughs> like, right. It was like engaging in ideas and like, yeah, Buckley could be like a little trite and like a little trolly in that 1950s, 1960s way. Right. Like right. Yale was definitely a troll. Right. Like he would, he would come up with some sort of witticism about Gore Vidal, you know, to roll out, but it wasn't, it, yeah. but it was still seated and like, you know, Burke and Russell Kirk. And it's not like, did you see this meme on Patriot Frog dot no, dot mill or whatever? Yeah, it's it's like the 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 devolution from an ideas oriented movement to just like crass populism, loud nationalism, hatred, vitriol. It's just it's uh it's you know, you and I have, have gone through it. It's been sad, depressing, and and uh, that's why we have an enemies list now. But we still have to press forward. Well, Margaret Hoover, thank you so very, very much for coming on the enemies list today. And spoiler, I've also been friends with Margaret's husband for many, many years. Best to John and the kids and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. I'm and, I really, really look forward to it. Thank you for having well, me. I, one more thing. Tell us where the folks can find you on social media and on the firing line. At Margaret Hoover on Twitter, at M. Hoove on Instagram, firing line at firing line show. 
Check your local affiliates. We're on every single PBS affiliate anywhere you are. Just uh, normally Friday nights or throughout the weekend, Sunday morning, sometimes that public policy slot on PBS. If you uh, don't <laughs> want to watch Chuck Todd or whoever replaced uh, MSNBC or uh, the Meet the Press, if you or maybe sometimes it's right after Meet the Press too. Yeah, tune in. Thank you so much, Margaret. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times, please rate, review, like, blah, 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 but you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends, and if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time, and remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. (laughs) 